So glad that you're here. Happy Mother's Day to the moms. My wife asked me if I was going to be doing a Mother's Day message this morning, and I said, I'm teaching on demons. <laughs> uh, Genesis chapter 6 is where I'm going to ask you to go to this morning. So Genesis chapter 6, and we'll be in verses 1 through 6, and we'll get there in just a minute. I'm going to pray with you first before we step into it. Um, just a reminder for you, if you happen to come in a little bit late, there's a discovery class that starts this Wednesday. That's, if you want to be a member at New Hope, you're interested in that, you want to explore that, that's what the discovery class is about. So I'll be teaching part of that as well as the elders leadership team here. And so the first one is this Wednesday night. And then also moms for our ladies after this service, my wife and her team put together um, tables out there with bulbs on it, right? Not flowers, but bulbs, right, Lori? Right, yes. Okay, we'll go with that. Um, there's a gift for you after the service. There's bulbs in the little containers out there. We really want you to take one with you when you leave today. So that's a, a gift from New Hope to you. Um, let's pray together, and we will uh, step into Genesis chapter 6. Father, I praise you for every single individual in this auditorium, that we have this time right now together to be able to learn more about you and your amazing eternal plan to rescue us. I pray the exact same way for every single person who's part of the church virtually right now. God, that each of us combined together in the auditorium in person or watching from home or from work, that you would use this to change us and advance your kingdom through us, that we would walk in the conviction and the power of the Holy Spirit as believers in Jesus Christ, to be able to be a force for your kingdom, to affect the world that we engage with. God, that would be our, our greatest hope. So I pray that your word would come alive now and that you would cause us to have a greater understanding of why you recorded these things so very, very, very long ago. Use it, Father, in Jesus' matchless name. And all God's people said, amen. If this were a movie setting right now, there'd be an undercurrent of music. And music would be playing like mountain streams flowing down the hillside and you'd hear birds chirping in the background because it would immediately create a tone, set a mood for you of what's going on in the earliest part of Genesis during this primordial era, what scholars call the antediluvian era, the time before the flood. The Bible demonstrates that during that time, that the climate of our planet was very, very different than what we know today. Physically, the setting of this planet appeared differently. Not the weather phenomena extremes that we know today. So imagine an environment with a gentle topography. Not the high mountain ranges that we know today, like the Rocky Mountains that are stony faces with craggy rocks, but rather a smooth flowing terrain with wide open areas for animals to graze on and many exotic animals that we've never seen before move across the Great Plains and they, they graze in massive herds as they move across the surface of the planet. There's an abundance of plants available. It's an environment without the violent winds that we know or without snow, without the drastic climate changes, much, much more like a tropical environment. And, and in that setting, the rivers and the lakes, they're crystal clear. 
There's so much aquatic life that you almost feel like you could step out and walk on the water to go across. The Bible presents that kind of an imagery at this time that is not at all like our current environment with a tendency towards extreme weather and natural disasters. During this period of time, there wasn't even rain known on the planet. Genesis 5 captures that, or Genesis 2, 5 captures that. It says this, the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, but a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Much like an underground sprinkling system, God causing water to bubble up from the surface to take care of the, the life on the planet, the plant life especially. So during this time, death certainly was existing because of the sin that happened in the garden. So death was there, it was a reality, but Genesis chapter 4 and Genesis chapter 5, as you saw last week, depicts this really, really long life of humans. We read in the record that Methuselah lived 969 years, Adam well over 900 years. So 1,600 years from Adam to the time of the flood, and, and during that period of time, assuming that being 400 is like being 40 today, at 400 they tend to reach midlife, still having children apparently well into their 400s and even into their 500s actually did. Read this with me, Genesis 5.32, Noah was 500 years old, and Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So if your parents are Adam and Eve, or your grandparents are Adam and Eve, and they're genetically perfect because God said that they are, perfect eyes, perfect teeth, perfect lungs, perfect brain, perfect everything, you're very likely going to inherit those traits from them. And so you inherit them as their offspring, so Adam and Eve's children are living a very, very long period of time, and they have many children, and the environment is very mild, and the climate is really temperate. It's like living in a greenhouse. And the humans are having children, lots of children, and their children are having children, and their children are having children. And conservative estimates say that during that 1,600-year span of time, if you go from Adam down to the time of the flood, there's likely billions of humans on the planet by this point. So Genesis chapter 6, verse 1 starts this way. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. When men began to multiply, the word that's used there is the word for mankind. It's the Hebrew word ha-hadam. You'll see this up on the screen and it's in your notes this morning. It's, it's just talking about the species of humans. So men and women are multiplying upon the face of the earth. And so as this society is developing and expanding, then we find these entities, the sons of God, are introduced into the narrative. And you have to stop at that point and say, wait, who is that? Who are the sons of God that saw the daughters of men? What is this indicating? It not only seems like it's disjointed, it kind of creates a little bit of a fog in your mind and leaves us with more questions than answers. After the 9 o'clock service, I was inundated with individuals who wanted to explore this further because they said in the past they just read right through this and never really noticed that title, Sons of God. Well, let me state the obvious. We're, we're deep into Genesis at this point. It's still before the flood, though. That hasn't happened yet. But much has transpired on the earth between the time of Adam and Noah. The, the arts and sciences are expanding and advancing, as we saw last week. 
Why, out of all the things that happened during that 1,600-year span of time, does God choose to tell us that detail? There's so much else going on on the planet. Why does he move Moses to write that down? I know that one of the promises of God is that the Bible that you hold in your hands this morning, the Bible that you own, that you have at home, the reasons these accounts were written is for encouragement. That's what Scripture actually says. Look with me at this at Romans 15.4. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through the perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So how do I gain hope from this Old Testament story about Genesis chapter 6? And how in the world do I understand these sons of God? This aspect, especially as it's referring to them taking the daughters of men and producing, as you read the story, what seems to be a super race. What do I do with this information? Well, a key component to understanding this entire passage is to find out who are the sons of God. And I find this absolutely marvelous because Jesus speaks of this account. Jesus speaks to this in the book of Matthew. It's recorded that he refers back to this time of Noah. So obviously Jesus knew that this was a legitimate and real story. Well, I'm going to tell you my position right out of the gate about who these sons of God are. I'm convinced that these are fallen angels. Uh, you may not necessarily agree what the New Testament calls demons. So we'll look at that that way because that's the lens by which I understand it. And I'll show you why I hold that position. You may not come to the same conclusion. We'll still be friends afterwards. That's okay. All right? You may not have the same conclusion, but I'm going to show you why I hold that conclusion. So if I'm approaching it from that standpoint, I'm going to ask myself, what is the goal of demonic activity? Why does Satan do what he does? Well, the Bible reveals it very, very clear. His attempt is to thwart or ruin the plan of God, to destroy what God is intending to do. So let's back up. It's pre-flood. And the humans are engaged in normal functions of life. They're doing exactly what God designed them to do. Other than worship Him the way that they're supposed to, they're very productive in their life. And they're having babies, and they've been incredibly blessed. Here's what the blessing looks like, Genesis 1.28. God said this, God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. That's the blessing God gave to Adam and Eve, and He never removed that blessing as a result of the curse. The blessing is still in place, and here we are, the evidence of it. The earth has been fruitful. It's multiplied. People have had babies, have babies, have babies, have babies. And we've learned how to harvest the earth. And so exactly what God blessed them for, he says, go out and harvest the earth. Enjoy this planet that I've given to you and produce many, many children. So just like today as then, the advancements that they experienced are really impressive. Even while they're making very poor decisions in their lifestyle. Culture is making really sinful choices in Genesis 6. But as we saw last week, the animal sciences are being developed. Metallurgy is being developed. The, the skills of poetry, the skills of music. And they're tapping into the tremendous resources that God has placed into this world for us to enjoy. Uh, we know what it was like, not only because of the account in Genesis, but because of what Jesus said. Let me take you to that statement. Matthew 24 says this, verse 37. Jesus is speaking. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like in the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. 
Jesus' references to the fact that life was going on normal there. Life is good. Culture is expanding. The economy is moving on. They have great relationships. They're making technological advancements. And for 1,600 years, the growth charts are tracking up and to the right. They're doing exactly what God blessed them to do, and they've got the gift of children, and they're harvesting the planet. But then there's this unforeseen caveat that's introduced into the story, and you read it this way, Genesis 6-2, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose, meaning into those developments of society, into what was going on, there's this distinct shift, and it's the very reason God moves Moses to write, there were daughters born to the sons of men, because daughters become the major focus of what's going to unfold on the planet. And suddenly, it becomes eerily similar to what Jesus said. Look at it again, Matthew 24. Before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until, in other words, everything's going along normal until it wasn't. Everything's going according to the blessing, but then Satan creeps in again moving into their environment, just like he had previously. Verse 2 again, the sons of God took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. And look at God's reaction to the satanic activity. Look at verse 3. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. Keep going for context. Verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. I'm getting heated up up here. Should we be surprised that demons surface in the very ancient components of the book of Genesis? No. We've already seen the lead demon, Satan, surface in Genesis chapter 3. So we shouldn't be surprised that demons show up in the earliest account of human history. We're quite aware, according to what God's Word says, that we are not the only intelligent creatures living in this universe. Angels are found literally scattered throughout the record of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. And when you get to Revelation, Revelation 12 indicates that during Satan's rebellion against God, he swept one-third of the holy angels with him in his rebellion, and they joined him in his revolt. They're created to be in the presence of God, to serve God, but they're cast out of his presence because they joined Satan. And if you want to read about that yourself, read about it, just write it down, read about it later today, Isaiah 14 describes that rebellion, and Ezekiel 28, it describes that rebellion. And so from Genesis to Revelation, demons are found working in collaboration with Satan's efforts to derail God's purposes. We know that Satan is portrayed as someone who's in the Bible quite active in society, working at all levels of government, working in the midst of families, trying to destroy the work of God. That's what he does. The story of Job is a prime example of that. If you haven't read the book of Job, I encourage you to do that. And the work of Satan is very ancient, it's very deliberate, and it's really cunning. 
So by the time you get to the book of Revelation, you find that demons have free reign on this planet. We're told that in the last days, they will infiltrate this planet to such a degree that has not existed before with the existence of man on this planet. But ultimately, praise God, they're going to be obliterated by Jesus. We understand that from what Scripture says. So they're very deliberate in what they do. But back here in Genesis chapter 6, we get the first recorded large-scale satanic activity. And it's inserted right into human society when we read that the sons of God came among the humans... And they're taking daughters, and I'm calling this a demonic invasion. And you might be thinking right now, okay, where do you get that from? How do you come to that conclusion? Well, the first thing that you should notice is that these sons of God, as it's written here, are juxtaposed against the daughters of men. The author is very deliberate in writing it this way. It could say the sons of God and the, sons, uh, the daughters of God. It could say the, the sons of men and the daughters of men, but it's juxtaposed. In other words, it's emphasizing who they're stemming from. One is stemming from God. One is stemming from mankind. Umberto Cossuto is an old dead theologian, lived a long, 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 long time ago. I like reading his stuff because his insights are so great, but... He's, he's a guy who was living in Italy, he's Jewish, and he writes in German. Okay, it feels a little disconnected, right? But his insights are so great, he comes to the exact same conclusion as he works through these things. He says very specifically the differences in who they stem from. Are they stemming from God or are they stemming from mankind? That, that's one detail. The, the very next thing that we notice here is that every time in the Old Testament sons of God are referenced... Every single time that title refers to angels. Here's an example for you. Job 1, verse 6. There was a day when the sons of God, there's the title, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came among them. So that's describing a very ancient gathering of angels who came to present themselves before God. The demons came, and Satan was among them, and the holy angels, and they're presenting themselves for an accounting. So the sons of God title is used there. Now the title, sons of God, it refers to the direct creation of God. In other words, you and I were procreated. We're the result of our mom and dad. We were procreated, but these ones are not called procreated. They're called the direct creation of God. So therefore, they're called the sons of God. So these spiritual beings from another realm saw the daughters were beautiful and took them, and it is a massive overstep of their boundaries, of the realm that God had relegated them to. So we see this in Jude chapter 6. Angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for judgment of the great day. What Judah's describing is that there's some angels, unholy angels, who rebelled with Satan and were relegated to an abode, but they abandoned their abode and they defy God by leaving the defined realm and they go after the daughters of men. Now, Scripture is really, really clear. There are many fallen angels, some still loose today. Jesus encountered them, demons whom he cast out and whom he dealt with. But according to what we see in the New Testament, there are some fallen angels 
who were so egregious in their behavior that they were bound for all eternity and they're being kept in chains in hell. So you have in Jude some of the fallen angels being put in these everlasting chains of darkness, never to be set free again. But back in Genesis 6, what you're reading is that they left their realm and they enter the human realm. And we know that they do that from Scripture because Satan appeared in the garden and took on a different form, different than the way that he would normally appear. So in some perverted, twisted way, these wicked spirits are attracted to the pure beauty of these earthly females to which you would step back and say, man, this sounds like sci-fi. Like, this could be Hollywood stuff. I'm amazed nobody's made a movie about this, by the way. You, you have to step back and say, how can this be? How can they engage in the activities of marriage? Well, there's only one possible way that I understand it. They're taking on human form. Not only did Satan take on a different form in the garden when he appeared in Genesis chapter 3, but we find also in Genesis chapter 19 that when angels appeared, they appeared to Abraham in the form of humans. Hebrews 13 in the New Testament says, be careful about who you entertain because some have entertained angels without even knowing, meaning humans that they assumed were humans. So Scripture is pretty clear. It's littered throughout Scripture. When angels appear in Scripture... They always appear as males. I don't know if you knew that. Never as females. They always appear in male form. So Jesus tells us that the holy angels in heaven, they don't marry, nor are they given in marriage. Look at this example. Matthew twenty-two thirty. Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the Scriptures, nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven, that does not mean they're without gender, though. They're always given the male pronoun when they're referred to in the Bible. So the Bible demonstrates that demons can enter humans. Let me speculate with you where this is going now. What is shown here is that this antediluvian society, this pre-flood era, has reached such a corrupt point that demons are taking up residence as sons of God in human form, and they've moved in and they're cohabitating with women. Now, demons, biblically, are defined as those who are really wicked, unrestrained wickedness, and they function in the exact same way that Satan does. Well, he set the pattern. In Genesis, he showed how to engage with humans in the garden, so they're going to do the exact same thing. So whatever this is, it's something different than marriage. It's different than verse 1. Verse 1 says they're multiplying on the earth. The humans are having normal relationships. There's lots of babies. They're advancing society, procreating. This is not that. It's called out separately because it's some kind of weird perversion to what is normal. So verse 3, then the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever because he is also flesh Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. Pause for a second. Many people read through this so quickly that they miss what God said in the very beginning. The spirit God is referring to is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God. What does the Holy Spirit of God do? The Holy Spirit today, just as then, works on our hearts to provoke us to provoke us to repentance. 
God is saying, according to his own statement, the Spirit of God is striving with these humans to bring about a tenderness towards God. The phrase strive, I will not strive, it actually from the Hebrew, it, it pictures a sailboat. And the picture is this, a sailboat going from point A to point B, running a straight line, if you will. God is saying, I'm trying to move these humans down a straight line that they would not veer off course, but they're veering off. I'm striving with them. I want to keep them on course. And he's trying to convict them of their ungodly behavior. That's the striving of the Holy Spirit. So what verse 3 is telling you is that God has been patiently waiting. But the patience that he's exhibiting is stretching at the seams and it reaches the point where the wrath of God is seething. So by the time you come to verse seven, God says, I'm gonna blot them out. I'm gonna wipe them from the face of this planet. And it reaches total exasperation. That's why in verse three, he says, I'm striving with them, but I'm not always gonna strive with them. So God says, I'm not going to keep allowing this to go on without end. The issue is the humans. Did you notice it doesn't say, my spirit is not going to strive with the demons? It says, my spirit is not going to strive with Hadam, mankind, because the demons can't engage with the humans unless they're invited, unless they've opened themselves up to it. Dr. John MacArthur captured it this way. I was reading his materials, and I thought this was a worthy sentence for you to see. He said it this way, the judgment of fallen angels is not the subject of Genesis. Man is the subject of Genesis. This is the record of the history of man, and this is the subject judgment of man who has opened himself up to demons, just like Adam opened himself up to Satan. So this demonic invasion is not just the action of fallen angels. It's the fault of humans who engaged with them. So here's what you should be catching. The wickedness of human society is so profound in the pre-flood era. It's so excessive that the humans are actually willfully engaging in demonic activity, behaving in the most ungodly way. And you should read that really somberly because Jesus said, that's what it's going to be like in the days before the coming of the Son of Man. When the last days of the planet arrive, you're going to know because it's going to be that kind of thing. Now, even though we're not looking at what God does with the demons right now, I want you to know God does punish them. And we've already seen that they're being held in chains of darkness. This is what Peter said, 2 Peter 2.4. God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. And that's not talking about all those who rebelled against him. Because Jesus engaged fallen angels in the first century. It's talking about this specific group. So God's not saying, I'm not going to strive with demons forever. He does say, I'm going to destroy man. I'm sorry that I made him. Because there is limits to his patience. There is limits to the mercy of God. There is a time limit when God will no longer strive with someone, and he gives them over, Scripture says. So here's where hope begins to break in. Hope is found in verse 3, and you need to bear down on this. Look very closely at verse 3. Nevertheless, 
And be very glad, church, that nevertheless is there. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. And here is an introduction of grace in Genesis chapter 6, way back in the Old Testament. 120 years before the flood, God says, I'm going to give them 120 more years. Nevertheless, they've pushed at the boundaries. They've stretched the seams of my mercy. Nevertheless, 120 more years to repent. What in the world went on during that 120 years? To clarify it, let me take you back to what Peter wrote. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Watch verse 19. In which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who were once disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. What went on during that 120 years? Bear down on what Peter just said in chapter 3, verse 20. The patience of God was waiting. The patience of God was waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. So Noah's role is not just a construction manager. The New Testament actually says he's a preacher of righteousness. So for 120 years, Noah's building an ark. And he's doing exactly what God called him to do. He's behaving the way that God asked him to behave while the patience of God is waiting. So the New Testament says he's a preacher of righteousness during that period of time. So imagine people in the area coming to him and saying, Noah, why are you building that? And I'm pretty confident that he didn't say, guess. Because we're told he's a preacher of righteousness. So he's living his life in a way that a godly man is supposed to live. He's speaking about the things that God is doing. He's proclaiming what God is up to. That's the mercy of God. Watch what Scripture says, 2 Peter 2.5. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. That's exactly what he's doing here. So for 120 years, he preached, he lived righteousness while the patience of God waits. The mercy of God allows a witness. The patience of God is waiting. The mercy of God allows a witness. That's the grace of God. It's amazing. Church, think of yourself in that context. The patience of God is waiting in our generation. The mercy of God has allowed a witness, the church. And that's grace. God's saying, you're my witnesses. Go out and represent me. That's the grace of God. That's God at work. Warn those who are living wickedly. And if they turn from their sin, there will be grace extended to them. That's God. That's what he's called the church to do. So along comes verse 4. And verse 4 speaks about the Nephilim. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. There is lots of ways to read that. 
especially depending on where you put the punctuations and where you put the accent and the way that you're reading it. And a lot of people have, and I respect individuals who have a different view on this than what I do. The, the most consistent conservative viewpoint on explaining this, though, is exactly what I've shown you so far. There's every indication that what is born here of this ungodly union is in human form, but it's clearly not normal. There's something super here. See, these first four verses that you've looked at this morning, they're so important because it not only shows you and I what to expect from Satan, that he's working constantly to derail God's plans, but it also opens up the panorama to see why God took the action that he did in destroying the population of this planet with this global flood. A race of humans have been produced through this satanic activity with the intention to undermine the plan of God to destroy the seed of the woman. See, this is where you link it with Genesis chapter 3. Satan was in the garden when God pronounced the curse. Satan heard it himself when God said, there's one coming, the seed of the woman who will crush your head and destroy you, Satan. So his natural response is going to be to try and take out God's plan. There's an intensity here. A race of humans produced by satanic activity with the intention to undermine God's plan. If the offspring of the humans is deviant, they can destroy the plan of God to bring a Messiah through a woman. So how influential are these demons at this period of time on human activity? Go with me to the next verse, verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Man, drink that in, church. Drink in what that would be like to live in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation to the degree that it's so very, very dark it actually serves as the backdrop in revealing in vivid relief the righteousness of Noah. He's called perfect in his generation. Not that he walks on the planet without sin. All you have to do is read Genesis chapter 9 and see Noah had sin in his life. But he knows who his focus is on. His focus is on God. What causes God to step in and destroy humanity? Wickedness is at such a proportion, they're not only not seeking to know God, they want to know evil. So God says, they do it continually, 24 hours a day. They're that dark. Depravity has reached such a point, there's such an active engagement that they're engaged with the very powers of hell. So here's God's response. Verse 6. The Lord was sorry that he made them man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart, the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. The first thing that you should know is that God is not apologizing because God does not make mistakes. Correct? God doesn't make mistakes, so that can't be what's being communicated here. Rather, what's being communicated is it's being stated in human terms so that we can understand the Creator is hurting. He's deeply grieved that man has chosen this direction. I like the King James Version of this particular passage because it's translated this way. God repented. 
Now, that may cause you to step back and say, wait, God repented. Why would God repent? Here's the concept behind repenting. You're going down one particular direction, and you come to a determination to go another direction. The concept behind repenting means to change direction. So we find God looking upon this horrible scene and choosing to say, I'm done. I'm not going to go any further with them. And this is an absolutely shocking contrast to Genesis 1.31. Remember what happened in Genesis 1? We're told in Genesis 1.31, God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was good. Now God sees everything, and it's wicked. And we're only five chapters after creation, and he sees this enormous wickedness. So, like, how horrific is sin that the God of the universe reaches the point of saying, it's over. I'm out. They have rejected me. This really echoes of Jesus on Palm Sunday riding into Jerusalem and stopping midway and weeping over the city of Jerusalem and saying, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How often would I have gathered you under my wings as a hen gathers its chicks? God's mercy has been extended, and he's saying, they've rejected me. So how do I get hope from that? Scripture says it's been written for your encouragement. It's been written for your hope. How do I gain hope from this narrative? Well, immediately after reading of this massive sea of wickedness on this planet and the grief of God's heart, that's when we're told in verse 8, but Noah, but Noah found favor. The word is grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And he stands as this oasis in the midst of a desert of sin. One family in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation so when Noah comes into view, God's eyes lock on him. I've told many of you that I love 2 Chronicles 16.9. It says this if you haven't heard it before. The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro across the whole earth, seeking to show himself powerful on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to him. God's scanning the earth, and he sees Noah, and he locks on Noah. But I want you to notice it's the grace of God, not the grace of Noah, which will keep him from a watery grave. It's the grace of God that saves us, right, church? It's the grace of God. Noah didn't earn his position. It's not the grace of Noah. But it's really beautiful to note that here, it's in Genesis 6, this precious word of grace is seen for the very first time in the Bible. When the sin of humans reaches its high point, grace is on display. So check this. Humanity is at its absolute worst. Yet where sin abounds, grace does much more. That sounds like scripture, doesn't it? Let me take you to Romans 5. Look at Romans 5. But where sin abounded, grace did, what church? Finish it with me. Much more Paul loves to write this. I know he's excited when he writes this. We got sin all over the place, but where sin abounds, grace destroys it. Grace did much more abound. And he goes on to say, only happens one way. It happens through Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
humanly speaking, it is never easy for a believer to live a life that brings glory to God. We know what culture does to us. We know how the things that we're exposed to every week, the things that we're influenced by, try to suck us in. But I'm so encouraged that here, way back in Genesis 6, is a man living in a world surrounded by vast wickedness. Moses wrote, All flesh had corrupted its way on the earth. It was all evil. And yet Noah, Noah himself is compelled to set his face against the current of public opinion. Noah says, I'm going to stand for the Lord. Is that a proclamation you can make this morning? Can you say, in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation, I'm going to stand for God? God's own word promises you this, that if you're in relationship with him and you stand for him, his eyes lock on you. Look with me again at this statement. 2 Chronicles 16, 9. I want you to read it for yourself. For the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro throughout the whole earth, that he may show himself powerful on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to him. That's the way we approach this week ahead of us. You may be surrounded by wickedness. I don't know what your world contains. But you can make that determination to say, God, no matter what, no matter the current of society, I'm dedicated to you. I'm going to do what you've called me to do, not what culture's calling me to do. I'm going to pray for you that way right now. I'm going to pray that you would walk in that reality. If you don't yet know Jesus as your Savior, I'm encouraging you, this is the day that you can know him. You can be seen by God as righteous this morning. Let's pray together collectively. Father, I pray for every single person who's either engaged virtually or in the auditorium live, that every one of us would take this reality and let it go deep in our hearts. We recognize there are limits to your mercy. There is a point when your patience stops. And you will bring your wrath. We see it echoed in the Old Testament and we see it in the New Testament, Father, so we know it's going to happen. But in the midst of where you have us living right now, we don't know how long, but we know that you call us as people who belong to you to walk as though we belong to you that other individuals could point at us and say, there's a person who walks after God's own heart. I pray, Father, for our church that that would be true of us, that every single one of us would chase after you regardless of what culture says. And that as your eyes scan the earth, you would lock on us and show yourself powerful on our behalf. Father, I especially pray for individuals who may not know you yet, perhaps even in the auditorium right now, that want to begin a relationship with Jesus, that want forgiveness of their sin. God, I pray for those individuals that you surround them with the power of your Holy Spirit. Give them the courage to say, I want to know Jesus. Father, I pray that you would comfort, but that at the same time, you would convict. Remind us that it's because of Jesus this is true. We pray in his matchless name and all God's people said, Amen. If you'd like to know more about what we just talked about, I'll be up here in the front. I'd be glad to engage with you, especially if we haven't met yet. In the meantime, have a great Mother's Day. See you next week.